Hello, welcome to this week's HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm Dave West, HSJ Deputy Editor, and each week on the podcast, we bring together a group of HSJ's expert journalist team. Today, I'm joined by Bureau Chief Ben Clover and by correspondents Nick Carding and Alison Moore. We are talking about the latest developments on coronavirus this week, and they're going to cover, firstly, the latest work on the extra risk from the virus to people with a BAME background. Secondly, recent developments on the testing and tracing for COVID programme and regime. And finally, NHS capacity for normal care as it seeks to navigate a COVID infected world. Firstly, Alison Moore, you, uh, we published a story by you yesterday evening about um, about the latest developments and research by uh, that Public Health England had been asked to do um, on the relative risk to people from a black Asian minority ethnic background uh, from coronavirus following um, substantial concern and and already a background of evidence about um, about extra risk there. Could you tell us about the latest developments? Yes, well the Public Health England report was issued yesterday afternoon and I think it took a lot of people by surprise. It was rather dry. It was a statistical analysis. What it showed was obviously very shocking about the increased risk to people in the BAME group. Um, however, there was there were things that were, were missing. Uh, we know that there'd been a, not a consultation process, but a an engagement process where a large number of organisations and individuals had contacted PHE giving their views, giving their lived experience and making some recommendations. That was missing from the report entirely. And there wasn't really much discussion of other vulnerable minorities. Uh, We've been promised something on people like travellers and gypsies. That was missing as well. It came to light yesterday afternoon that some of this had been included in what had been submitted to the Department of Health and Social Care and had been removed before it was published. And there was a certain amount of concern from some very senior people uh, that this should have happened. Do you have a feel of, do we have a feel of why this might have been? Not quite certain. It's possible it may have been seen as quite heated, possibly even inflammatory at a time where uh, obviously, we're seeing um, a great deal of um, discord in America after the Floyd killing and that this may not have been the right moment to publish this sort of thing. However, it does seem re- very surprising because the team that looked into this was led by Professor Kevin Fenton of Public Health England. And only 10 days ago, he took part in a webinar where he referred to the three components of his study, which were were going to be the statistical matter that came out yesterday. And in addition, the the results of the engagement, plus uh, a look at the other vulnerable groups. And he implied that these were all going to be submitted at the same time uh, to DHSC. And there was obviously an expectation there that that would come out as a whole. So we're not quite certain why that's missing. And we focused it on um, quite a lot on on the the bit that you described as um, I think wider engagement. So do we do you know any more about the kind of stuff that that was in that's in that uh, in that report? We know a little about that. Um, the Muslim Council of Britain, for example, uh, were 
quite vocal about what they sought, uh, what they they saw as as some of the issues, the the sort of institutionalised racism that um, people B A M E origin face, and they they made some very um, striking comments that um, would have been sent to PHE. I mean, they referred to structural raci racism and discrimination in the NHS, um, said that PHE should look into this in more detail and should look into specific measures to tackle the culture around this. Did um, Greg, I ask Alison, did the Department of Health say anything about why why that bit was missing? I, I guess we put it to them. What, what, what was their we, official line on it? We, we put this to both the Department of Health and PHE uh, yesterday and uh, again today and uh, they both say that nothing was removed. Now we've heard from multiple sources that, that the draft that was uh, knocking around last week definitely had this in. Mm. We've asked uh, PHE and Department of Health again whether possibly this was intended as an additional document uh, and, and, and that had been held back but they haven't answered us. Yeah. It seems like a sort of strange thing for them to pick to make an issue out of if, if they just said we will publish this later or you know that we are, we're going to publish it as an addendum in the next week or you sort of feel like they're making a bit of a, a rod for their own backs by not being very open about it because there, there may be a reasonable reason as to why it wasn't published I guess but it seems strange that they're not telling us why. It, it does seem strange and I, there may be a perfectly reasonable explanation for it um, they just haven't given it to us. Uh, we have had it suggested to us, and obviously we can't um, confirm this, that uh, some of it was removed at Mr Hancock's office, not necessarily by Mr Hancock, but um, within his office. Um, it, in, how many responses was this concerning, Alison? Was it, did you already say it was quite a, quite a number? Yeah. It was meant to be between 1,000 and 1,500 from all sorts of different organisations, obviously some faith groups, um, some community groups, some other NHS-linked organisations. Right. And, and what we know so far is, did it, did it also cover um, the the specific roles that were that were most at risk, the, the types of jobs? Um, the the report from PHE did yes yes yesterday yes, and it highlighted a number of roles which had a disproportionate risk. Um, top amongst those was actually security guards, um, then cab drivers and similar, and but also nursing associates and auxiliaries. Which may start to tell us something about the why, but potentially. And I think that was one of the things that there was, you know, even before our um, your story revealed that this work had been um, removed and it wasn't being published alongside the rest there was a, a lot of sort of disappointment and dissatisfaction among um, people who, who had a stake in this or were, were following the work um, that 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 the pu report which was published was very much a statistical kind of dry statistical analysis rather yes. than trying to get at the sort of whys and the and, and they seem to have even in relation to the statistics seem to have not carried out some analysis as, as you said which might have started to point to the why about the you know are people doing different roles are there different comorbidities in different ethnic groups and that that sort of stuff um is that 
Sorry. A lot of people yesterday seemed to feel that this really didn't add very much to to, to the debate. It told us things we already knew, which was mm. basically that people of black and minority ethnic origin were were dying in uh, higher numbers than would be expected. Mm. It reminds me a bit of um, some of these units were set up, uh, you know, well, governments of various um, types have set up these kind of units and, and Theresa May's government most recently, because she, when she came out and said she was going to start tackling the burning injustices and, and talking about um, race and ethnicity and sort of ask a statistical unit to say, right, we'll do the analysis um, and then and show, you know, lay bare the issue here. Um, and as if as if that will actually start solving the problem, which you know, yes. actually a lot of this stuff, um, once you start to know the know about the numbers and facts that are out there, a lot of it actually is the, the numbers are there. I mean, more analysis can always in, inform things, but it's um, the danger of asking for a st and publishing only a statistical analysis is it just lays bare a whole bunch of facts which you know rather than starting to point towards action. Um, and it sounds seemed to me like um, perhaps uh, a classic case where they've the government's received these two or three you know related pieces of work um and one of them the statistical one which has been published basically presents facts which don't cause don't sort of beg a whole load of well they do beg a load of questions but they don't sort of uh they don't they don't um add a great deal of concern to the public debate because it's already out there um and then the more difficult bits they've kind of said well these are in a too difficult box and sort of they've because one thing they did say yesterday i think the initial uh, something that ha uh, matt hancock said was we're passing some of this work to the equalities minister who i guess is in the home office to to sort of do some kind of next stage and then subsequently uh, shortly after your story uh, was published i suspect not coincidentally um professor kevin fenton who was the meant to be leading the work kind of sort of then come out and kind of seemingly seeking to stress that the work the other work i've done which hasn't been published will will at some point come out and will will feed into these work with the equalities minister but i mean passing something over to an equalities minister in a different department um feels like a, a long grassing of something doesn't it when the work's already been done it feels like this was kind of too hot to handle for whatever reason and we're now passing it to another department where it will take who knows how long after they've had um can you remember when this work started but they've had quite a long time to carry out this analysis in, yes, in coronavirus a months, sense a couple of months ago that it started and um, you know in a sense it was already too late because we were in yes. the midst of the peak of this disease yes and I think the decision to pass it to another department must have come fairly quickly um, because, as I said, 10 days ago, Kevin Penton was talking of the, this all being published um, to, together yeah. in, at the end of May or early June. Mm. So possibly something's happened in the last 10 days which has changed minds. Yeah. And just to add, I saw I think I saw a line in your story, Alison, about uh, some sort of activists to put out a tweet condemning the the fact that this had been removed, and it was shared, I think, by Yvonne Coggill, the Energies England uh, Res leader. Is that correct? Which that, that seemed quite striking indeed, as well. Yes, yes, there's been quite a lot of Twitter traffic on this, and in yeah. fact, the issue was raised with the Prime Minister at Prime Minister's questions. Did he engage with it substantively? He, <laughs> it may surprise you to know this, but no, he dodged that one. Right. Hopefully, we'll start to get some answers soon. Um, do um, I, 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 we should ask uh, before we move on to the next topic, Alison? What's you know what's the NHS doing about this itself? Because and particularly for NHS staff, um, Ben, um, as 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 you mentioned, one of the the 
job groups particularly affected by uh, extra mortality looks like health his peers to be healthcare assistants um what's the nhs doing about trying to protect its staff who are bame origin a fair amount um that there has been instruction from nhs england um suggesting that every member of staff should be risk assessed um to see if there's particular circumstances i think one of the concerns has been that some staff who have become very ill and in some case died from COVID had underlying um, comorbidities which they hadn't mentioned um, to their employer and had had the employer known they might have considered redeployment to a, a, a less frontline role. Okay all right thank you. Um, well, let's move on to, to our second topic we were going to talk about uh, today, which is testing. And, um, uh, and Nick Carding, you've been following the testing issue for us um, for, for a while now uh, through this sort of various stages of targets and uh, task calamities and, and it's so a lot on. to follow. Absolutely. Uh, keeping you busy. And um, do oh, tell us about the latest. What have we seen this week? So. There's three uh, separate sort of developments, I would say, that are worth highlighting. So the first one, uh, end of last week, um, we revealed that the NHS had been given just two days to roll out thousands of these antibody tests, which I was supposed to tell you if you've had COVID-19 in the past. Um, it seemed odd um, when you look at it on surface because sort of giving the NHS a very short space of time to, to roll out such a huge amount of tests seemed um, a bit strange um, just to have that sort of short deadline but then of course this happened two days before the uh end the deadline so the, the deadline for the uh boris johnson's targets for the uk to have a testing capacity of 200,000 tests and around the time this message went out uh the uk was currently providing about 160,000 tests or had the capacity to provide 160,000 tests and then the nhs was told you need to roll out about 40,000 or so antibody tests in the next few days. So there was a distinct uh, whiff of this is being done purely to uh, hit a target rather than serve any meaningful um, sort of purpose um, with, with antibody tests. And, and of course, it's worth remembering as well that we don't yet know um, just because you've had COVID in the past, it might not mean that you're still immune to it, you might still be able to get COVID afterwards. So there is still uncertainty about how much meaningful info you can get um, from from antibody tests. So so that was one um, story which appeared to show yet again the sort of government's desperation to make sure they hit targets that they set, even if those targets don't necessarily make too much sense in themselves. Um, secondly, um, early this week, there is now an emerging row, I think it's fair to say, between Matt Hancock's department and the UK Statistics Authority. Um, the latter has been raising concerns about the testing data, which is published um, every day by the Department of Health. Um, they, he's, he's the, the chair of the uh, authority, Sir David Norgrove, I think his name is. He's written to say that he thinks um, that Mr. Hancock's department isn't really um, being very uh, transparent with the data. Um, they're saying that the data is, quote, neither complete nor comprehensible um, and sort of calling for immediate improvements there. Um, Matt Hancock had responded to his sort of initial letter um, last week, pledging a bit more transparency and saying they would publish some methodology and, and sort of try and provide it 
a bit more clearly, but um, clearly that wasn't enough to sort of placate um, this particular watchdog. So it'll be interesting to see what they, um, what what Department of Health does after this sort of rather stinging letter which they received. Who are these? Uh, as a side note, who are these sort of statistical heroes who have popped up to? Uh, <laughs> so the, the UKSA is responsible for. Uh, I think they're sort of responsible for, as they say, maintain the good practice for statistics across the country. In theory, what they do is they um, look after the uh, sort of monitor the Office for National Statistics. Um, there's something called the Office for Responsible Statistic Distribution. It's, 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 it's a non-ministerial agency of the government, which is there to kind of regulate slash um, help um, departments with their statistics. Um, to be fair to the DH, um, they 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 made the point that you know this whole testing um, saga and setting up the testing capacity has been done at quite extraordinary pace, which which it has to be fair. That it has, although now well over three months. Um, you know, even if you well, three months, even if you um, you know give them a sort of reasonably fair hearing in, as to when they should have started it, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. You could argue that they started from a woefully bad place, but clearly. I'm sure it's complicated to present the data in a in a sort of clear way when you're dealing with lots of different companies that are helping you and they all run their own separate data systems. We've reported previously about some of the problems with data flows, but then equally it was interesting to see that um, shortly after uh, Mr Hancock had replied to um, the authority, they did publish um, a bit more data. So they published the sort of testing capacity available um, and you sort of wonder just, and also the published methodology, and you wonder why they just couldn't have published that straight away because clearly that was information they must have had, um, you know, in the last two months, but they just haven't chosen to publish for whatever reason. But it doesn't really make any sense why they couldn't just publish that along with what else they were publishing. So uh, we'll see what happens. The authority the UKSA wants them to publish um, regional breakdowns it also wants them to make clear exactly why um, tests that are posted out to people are um, counted as part of the overall tests processed um, number because that's very very controversial and we've we've never had a, a real answer as to why they should be counted in that way uh, no, something one of the things HSJ revealed on the on the eve of the first target deadline the um, end of April um, was 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 kind of very conveniently sort of our numbers started popping up just at that time um, to meet the first hundred thousand target, didn't they? Before a whole load of numbers for the antibody test just popping up at the end of um, at the end of May to meet the two hundred k capacity target. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, th there's there's no clear explanation as to why those tests um, should be counted. Uh, those tests that are posted out. And um, Sir David in his in his most recent letter again made the point that. You know, you're also not telling us how many of these posted tests are actually returned uh, and returned with samples that can be used. Um, so, again, that's uh, another set of data that is missing so far. But then encouragingly, uh, today, um, just to come on to the last sort of testing strand, um, Boris Johnson said that they are now targeting to turn around all tests within 24 hours and that's hoped to be in place by the end of June. So he mentioned last week that they were going to try and turn around all tests by um, in 24 hours, but it didn't say by when. So today he said it's going to be the end of June. So you um, can now hibernate until the, uh, the 28th of June when you come out <laughs> and find out what tricks they're up to at that point. <laughs> 
possibly yes although i think it's it's interesting and and the reason i say it was encouraging is because i think the turning around tests quickly is clearly really really important and it helps both the nhs and wider public health and councils sort of um, work with the contact tracing and work out how the infection spreading that is arguably i'd say far more important than um having a, a number of tests uh, available every day as long as you've got enough capacity to deliver what you want and we know that we've got that so this target feels more legitimate than um, just setting a number aka 100,000 by the end of April or 200,000 by the end of May and um, this target feels like it's got more clinical purpose and, and value and I just wonder if that might be a result of um, some more involvement now from Dido Harding and um, Sarah Jane Marsh um, with those two having come into the sort of leading the test uh, and trace program quite recently and they have said pre previously that that's what they wanted to focus on so i just wonder if that might be their influence starting to filter through which i think um, yeah. is a, a welcome change they've suggested that they want to bring some um, kind of coherent strategy to the way this is working but i mean just looking from the outside it still looks like a um a kind of a, a broth with a lot of sort of chefs standing directly around it kind of prodding it around doesn't it Definitely, it's still um, very messy. And you know, if you look at the the testing website at the moment, where they set out all this data, the the amount of sort of different explanations and different methodology, and the need to with that um, to change numbers from previously, which have been erroneously reported, there's a lot of that. And you know, you've got various private companies involved in running different parts of the testing program like I said earlier um, sort of contributing to a bit of a melting pot of um, of uh, people doing different things but all for the same purpose so it is still a very messy uh, layout I suppose the DH would say it had to be that way to get it scale up so quickly but hopefully it can be a bit more ministers still involved in the operational kind of thing still involved closely in the operations and that sort of stuff um, um, on the antibodies thing, I mean, I just wanted to return to the the sort of substance of that because, as you said, so the NHS was asked to start carrying out about forty thousand antibody tests very quickly. We don't, you know, we assume it's linked to the target, though we don't quite know. Um, uh, well, it was it was definitely linked to the to the target at the end of May, but we don't quite know whether the government ordered it or whether the NHS sort of decided it had to be done or what. But um, but we do, um, as you said, the, the letters. The, the, the interesting question of well why um because obviously it's quite nice to know whether you have had coronavirus um i'd quite like to know um but what's the actual point of doing something you know i can't see any point in doing it that quickly but what's the actual point in 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 doing for running out a mass program at this stage at all um and the letters because the letters were very clear and kind of starting with nhs staff obviously begs the question and makes a lot of people think about well are you trying to is it about immunity are you saying therefore that some staff are immune um and therefore they can potentially work in more risky um, situations, work in coronavirus wards and so on. Um, but the letters are absolutely clear that is not the um, that is not the case because we haven't proven that people are immune. Now, I think there's a sort of I think there could be other reasons for um, for it other than than that. And there's ones that have been put forward is generally vaguely it's about research. Well, what research and, and what kind of research trial, um, you know, what kind of robust research involves like rushly carrying out tests on anyone who's willing over in NHS staff groups across a period of a couple of days. Um, but 
you know, if it is research, what are they trying to research about immunity? And if so, what's the what kind of study is being carried out? Uh, how long will it take to report and things? Um, if it's not about immunity, um, so if it's not about research, then, you know, I, we, there were some interesting responses from people who seem to be quite well informed on on the HSJ website. And I've seen some some other comments um, from people who are medically trained or, or, or scientifically trained um, about Actually, there is a very high, it is considered pretty likely that you have at least some immunity um, for some period of time. Um, and people saying that actually it is useful to know this information and very much suggesting that they will kind of try and act on it in terms of how they plan staffing um, in the NHS. So part of me uh, suspects that actually it is planning to be used in that way. Um, if not immediately, then, you know, th th then people are hoping that they do very quickly get an answer to this, some sort of answer to this um, immunity question, and then they can start to use the data to do something about it. Um, yeah, that's, that's very likely, I think. Um, I think what really bugged some of the pathologists that I spoke to when we were just um, trying to get some feedback about what they were being asked to do was that because they were it was being rushed out they weren't a, so they were basically telling people just test anyone and the point that a few heads of pathology made to me was that you know if we could identify the, the right staff to take this test first for example if we sort of you know got everyone who had thought they had covid if they you know they had symptoms they don't know if it was covid or something else but they had symptoms there's more you can do with that data rather than just randomly testing people um, well yeah, yeah the pro i mean in a sense for study wise the problem is it's not random is it because the people who are going to really want to do it are the people who think they have had it probably or might have had it whereas if you're going to carrying out a study you need to select them on yourself you need to select them randomly and have control groups and things like that yeah. to say because it might be interesting well i'm sure it will be interesting to look at the proportion of staff who've had it in different um hospitals to, or uh, care settings to see whether there's to see something about spread you know and whether there are hospital there's been a lot of suspicion about hospitals where there's in-hospital spread and they're a big centre of where the, where the infection's coming from now. So which hospitals appear to have been much doing that and was it because they're bad on infection control and mm. so on? Um, Absolutely, but that, that's, the, that's the point that they were making. They were, you know, because they were basically being told to just test anyone who was around um, and not really take into account what sort of the importance was of testing that particular person. It was just uh, let's rush out and test them all now um, rather than do it doing it properly. And that, again, it just harks back to the... The desire to hit the target rather than to get any kind of meaningful data from it um, per se. Um, ben or Alison, I think you've both been um, looking a little bit about this question of host spread within hospitals uh, of the virus and that being quite an important, uh, being considered an Im important factor now. Is that if uh, you yeah, heard about that? There's, there's been um, there's there's been some reporting on it uh, showing it's one of the more significant um, drivers of infection. Um, I've spoken to people in hospitals who've said, you know, if, if this does turn out to be a, uh, uh, an illness that's going to be with us for, for a long time, then uh, it might be a sort of a new performance measure for trusts in like a year and a half's time or two years time is like number of hospital acquired uh, COVID cases. Um, there, there was some reporting uh, somewhere else about um, the, the 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 average amounts of sorry how much uh, infection was was picked up in hospital and put it at um, twenty percent, um, but 
other other hospital leaders said I don't know, the average is more like five to seven percent, but there was one place in particular um, that infection control was so bad that it dragged the national average up to 20, which would be pretty startling um, <laughs> if it was true. Um, and you'd think you'd, people would want to know where that was if only so as other people could very much not make whatever mistake they were making uh, on infection control. Um, maybe I mean, maybe that maybe that was Western Western Hospital, which was closed obviously two weeks ago because of the high number of COVID cases there. That would, that, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah, um, that's that's Dido's local hospital. Um, yeah, no, so so that's obviously a, a factor. And also the the number of hospital acquired infections of, of patients um, and of staff is, is uh, one of the big factors around the thing I was going to talk about, about the uh, the overall capacity uh, of the system, kind of the kind of capacity that hospital system is going to have uh, in the in the medium term. Um, that's something I've been writing about over the past week or so. Uh, it's just from talking to planners about how hospitals gear back up to um, to delivering elective procedures again. Um, and like lots of this is very consequential stuff around cancers, but it's also like the the great mass of of procedures that that are a lot of people's experience of the NHS, you know, kind of like hip and knee replacements, that kind of thing. All of that's been suspended um, for about eight weeks now. Um, and I've been having some conversations with people about exactly what sort of level uh, we might be able to return to because uh, there, there's obviously concerns that if you go in for an operation uh, and then you catch uh, COVID-19 and die, then that's that's obviously suboptimal. So how do we avoid that? So um, there's a, a load of different questions about how you restart it. Like hospital leaders have said, it's much more complicated to restart providing these services than it was to, to stop them in the first place. But anyway, the, the long and, and short of it from my, from my conversations with people so far is that the estimates of uh, how much work they'll be able to do uh, in the new world compared to to their um, run rates beforehand could be anywhere between like 40% of what they used to do all the way up to 80 at the more optimistic end. Um, and that's talking to, to clinicians and, and managers who've who've described kind of like how you would set up cold sites um, where people just have planned procedures uh, and where you don't do anything else and then you test people before they come in um to make sure they're not bringing it in with them i mean you'd also have to test staff uh every day i guess um so there's, so there's all kinds of um uh things that will make that complicated um but then that's that's having knock-on effects already so the the april elective waiting times data and the cancer data isn't out yet which is that the month we would have seen the most disruption but the uh, the march one is and you can see on electives um it looks like the the number of year plus waiters on the elective wait list is uh, people who waited more than a year for their treatment and who are still waiting uh, has gone from like about three thousand to about like thirty three thousand. The data indicates they they might have managed to treat a couple of people, but um, I think it's unlikely. So so yeah, there's there's lots of lots of concern about how you prioritise and like a number of kind of knock on effects of that. Um, I was speaking to some clinicians who say. Uh, that the NHS is just going to have to stop providing some some procedures, things that were kind of have been on the uh, they've gone by many names over the years as commissioners try and stop 
providers from carrying out these procedures, but things like uh, they're called like procedures of low clinical value, and saying they just will not be the theatre time probably. Um, possibly broad, broad, the broader end of that list because a, a lot of those is very there's not a great deal of it goes on anyway is there so the, oh yeah that no, no. plus the sort of low um yeah lower value end of stuff that actually it, it actually has generally not been rationed much so far yeah kind of things that are sort of um kind of bread and butter uh parts of the nhs's offer like like you know uh a hip or knee replacement or something like that where you go well look you might have to soldier on for for another two years without this uh before before we can get around to it but anyway um i was reporting earlier this week the um uh london's looking to extend the block booking of private hospitals in the capital kind of specifically to try and catch up with this um kind of ever-growing mountain of work um and there's, there's a number of implications for that i mean because broadly well in fact all, all all private hospitals in london don't have an a and e um, they have been fenced off. Some of it's already been um, used for for cancer stuff, but it's just it's just kind of remarkable that for possibly the first time in its history, you could end up effectively nationalising Harley Street for uh, and other sites for for quite some time. Um, I mean, two months is what what the consensus seems to be at the moment. But a lot of the planners I spoke to said, yeah, we'd really look, want to extend this to the end of the financial year. Uh, next March, or even like a, a full a full calendar year. Um, it's also also worth pointing out that the the managers I spoke to said it will feel quite different. So it would be it'll be staff who are used to doing you know most of their work in an NHS trust and maybe doing some private work in a private hospital now doing all of their NHS work um, in the private facilities, which are you know going to be designated covid free and hopefully enforced covid free obviously this has wound up quite a lot of um quite a lot of senior medics who who point out that it's uh they're going to drive out to essex to do their private work there i mean although actually what you mean uh, as opposed to as opposed to um uh L london yeah. yeah 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 i mean like london uh langham Buisson put it in 2018 it's something like the, the just for central london the turnover of the central London private facilities uh, was about 1.6 billion a year. So, you know, it's, it is a, a major hub for, you know, international uh, medical tourism and and just uh, general private work, domestic private work. Um, but yeah, there'll be there'll be knock on effects. Do um, you um, you were talking about hot, on, hot cold sites um, in relation to this? Do you is there? I know, I know that hospitals are dividing up, um, you know, wards and floors and um, units and and things to create, um, you know, hopefully COVID free facilities. But are, are there a lot of NHS hospitals being designated as COVID free? Cold um, yeah, yeah, there's. Yeah, in, in London, which is sort of led on this, um, and as, as contacts have pointed out, kind of, although the scheme, the extension is happening in London, first of all, uh, there's no reason why those same issues aren't going to be faced everywhere else. About how, do, how do you separate? Um, separate? They say have to separate, but talk, the people I've talked to outside London broadly say um, the, the options for having um, COVID-free sites are less, you know, substantially less outside um, London or maybe the West Midlands and Greater Manchester, big built of Liverpool built up areas where there's enough sites to do that because they don't feel they can be 
uh, you know, classic sort of reconfiguration issues. They don't feel that they could could split hot and cold and expect to send their patients, however, you know, half an hour or however long um, up the road to a different site. And they'd rather they'd rather go, and presumably it would be um, can more potentially more contentious as well because you've got a long you're designating a whole um, you know a, a whole town or city's hospital or county's hospital as um, as COVID or not um, gets a bit more controversial. Oh yeah, no, that's why they said um, they would want to use that. Pro- they would assume the same demand for for private facilities would be would be out out in the rest of the country as well. Um, Certainly beginning to see that a little in the southeast uh, with a number of the trusts here. Um, looking to continue to make use of private facilities, particularly around things like cancer, where obviously you really don't want a cancer patient to mix in with someone with COVID. And I think some trusts which are are double-sighted will look to make one site a COVID-free environment where, for example, they can carry out elective work as far as that is possible. And mm. I think the big question for many of them is, ha- how much of their elective work they will be able to restart with that sort of approach. Yeah, this is what, that's the kind of calculation planners are making all over the country. Yes. Um, And you think, I think you've written, Ben, that you're sort of, you would think it would end up somewhere between 50% of normal operating capacity to around maybe 50, 60, 70, 80, best case scenario, 80% of normal operating London London's piloting a scheme where they kind of bullishly think they can get it to 80 percent um kind of um some views i've had from from elsewhere in the center suggest it's probably more likely 50 percent mm. um because this is, involves, mm, this is gonna have, private in london and yes yeah yeah like t- lots and lots of it um but yeah this is also gonna have to be questions about how you how you pay the private sector for for this work kind of whether because the the tariffs that are used used for the the sort of the high volume uh, procedures the the ones that quite commonly got put out to to private providers to deliver uh, for an NHS tariff anyway they're all designed for a world where those procedures were a lot less expensive to do and we didn't because you didn't have all these measures that you had to put in place before yeah yeah so that's Um, and so, yeah, since we, the, you raised the question earlier about prioritisation, um, uh, is there elective activity? Are there types of operations that the NHS is basically going to stop doing to all intents and purposes, um, which is, you know, should become a political question, though, I guess, for, as, as forever, the politicians will try to avoid answering it directly. Um, but then the political, you know, the, there's a question up there for, for whether it's all the Simon Stevens or the politicians about um if the NHS can only operate um, at, at the NHS on, on as it currently is, can only operate about 60, you know, 70, 80 percent capacity, then do you want the NHS to just ca- carry on doing that for the same cost? Or do you want it to expand its capacity as far as it can, as if it can find the, if it can build facilities and find staff to do it? Do you want it to expand that at the cost of whatever, you know, substantial billions I would expect to to kind of to run its emergency and elective care at the same same rate as before to get the same? You'll need to spend more money and find more staff and more buildings. Yeah, no, like pretty significant capital asks have gone in from the ICSs um, in lots of cases, I'm told, uh, for 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 exactly that, for for having um, separate facilities where you can sort of blast through quite a lot of the of the lists but yeah i mean that's that's probably a 
uh, a saving long term compared with continuing to use the independent sector, which might not, which might want to get back to doing their own their own work after a while. Um, yeah, a question of how long you could actually actually use that stuff um, without without making those providers unviable. Okay. All right. I think we'll be talking about that issue for some time to come um, and the consequences of it. Thank you very much, Alison, Ben and Nick. And um, thank you for tuning in to listen. Please subscribe via podcast app. Visit hsj.co.uk to read more of our news and analysis. If you want to give us any feedback or um, ask us to cover anything in particular, you can contact us on Twitter at HSJ News or, or find my email address out there. Uh, please spread the word and speak to you next week.